You may have seen a few days ago that Mormons changed their stance on baptizing the children of gay couples. They maintain that gay sex is still a sin, but say that it no longer disqualifies your children from baptism, so it feels like a mixed blessing. And at the end of February, the United Methodist Church voted to create more stringent rules banning queer and trans people from both marriage and ministry. It only passed by a narrow margin, thankfully, but it left many in the LGBTQ community reeling. In light of the vote, maybe you've noticed this, lots of Methodist churches have put up rainbow banners as an act of loving resistance. As Unitarian Universalists, we have done a lot of work in the realm of sexual ethics. Many of you are familiar with the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which is comprehensive sexuality education. You saw many of our children went to it this morning. We've been ordaining gay clergy for decades and trying to create congregations that are welcoming to LGBTQ people. And yet, in January, the UUA and Trust, which is the trans UU group, released a joint report on the experience of transgender UUs, which said that 72% of trans UUs do not feel as though their congregation is is completely inclusive of them. The report is worth reading. If you haven't yet, we have work to do. All of this leaves me wondering how we might conceive of a just sexual ethic, a positive sexual ethic, one that includes people of all genders and sexualities and types of bodies, a positive sexual ethic that doesn't inadvertently frame LGBTQ people as the acceptable other but other nonetheless. In his book, Making Love Just, Marvin Ellison, who's a professor of Christian ethics, writes that creating sexual justice means three things. First, honoring the goodness of human bodies and recognizing sexuality as a spiritual power for expressing care and respect through touch. Second, it requires recognition of and respect for sexual difference including diversity of body shape and size, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, and family patterns. Third, in the face of sexual violence, sexual justice calls for respect and compassionate care between persons and groups. Ellison also writes this quote, a fearful people are also likely to project their fear and discomfort about sex and sexuality onto others. In our time, the overlapping communities of LGBTQ people, people of color, and people living with disabilities have become the cultural repositories or moral dumping grounds for other people's dis-ease about sensuality and the body, end quote. So let's begin with the body. 
1596, a man named René Descartes was born in France. I'm sure many of you know him. He was a philosopher, a scientist, and a mathematician, but he was perhaps most famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. Descartes created a philosophical idea called Cartesian dualism, or mind-body dualism. Now, I will confess that I am not a philosopher, but Cartesian dualism essentially says that the mind and the body are separate entities that interact. In this line of thought, the mind or soul has no physical substance, it's permanent, and it can exist outside of the body. The body, on the other hand, is tangible, it's impermanent, and it cannot think. And if Descartes' famous line is any indication, I think, therefore, I am, this philosophy infers that we are our minds, but not our bodies. If anything, the body is almost unnecessary. And I can see how this line of thinking would be seductive. Bodies are as fragile as they are resilient. They age and they ache. Howard preached about this quite vividly a few weeks ago. Bodies are impermanent. And so many religions speak of afterlives and reincarnation, all of which fit with this idea that the soul is separate and lasting. But Descartes loses me with the idea that the mind is the soul, that thinking is our whole essence, that thoughts matter most. And even more so, I question the idea that we can separate our souls and our bodies without consequence. When I spent a summer as a hospital chaplain, the most common and striking question I was asked was how the soul leaves the body. And there was always a reason for asking. It was a question that came from a family member when a patient was in critical condition because what they were asking about was death, about how we transition out of life. Death comes when the soul, the life force, the breath, and the body separate completely. The body still exists, but it becomes lifeless. Being alive is the opposite. Life is the unity of body and breath, of flesh and soul. To be alive is to be embodied, to feel the breath in your chest. To be alive is to be a thing of flesh and nerve and need and energy, to know pleasure and pain and love and touch. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Sexual justice begins with the body, with, as Marvin Ellison writes, honoring the goodness of human bodies and recognizing sexuality as a spiritual power for expressing care and respect through touch. 
The Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz Weber wrote a book recently called Shameless, a Sexual Reformation, in which she does what Ellison is talking about. She says in the introduction that it's time to take all of our antiquated and harmful ideas about sex and bodies and gender and start over. And she does. And one of the things I appreciate most about her book is that she's speaking about sexuality as a whole. The ways that religion and society teach everyone harmful things about sex and bodies and gender. So she doesn't treat gay and trans and queer people as a separate problem to be solved. And in a world in which hatred towards LGBTQ people is so often cloaked in religious language, there is power and, I think, healing in using religious language to build a positive and inclusive sexual ethic. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So let's begin at the beginning. The Jewish and Christian scriptures both begin with the book of Genesis. It's the origin story for creation, and it tells two different versions of how humans and the universe were created. This translation is adapted from Nadia Boltzweber's telling in her book. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God was maybe bored and a little lonely, so God created a terrifyingly vast universe, which included the earth. The earth, our speck of life, was just a void, and this great nothingness was super dark. And God could have made the universe in any way that she chose, but she's a gardener by nature, so she grew it from seed, knowing it was going to be a process. And the first seeds came in the form of four words from the mouth of God, let there be light. God's words do what they say. So from the breath of God, the world came into being. Oceans, land, heaven, sun, moon, stars, plants. It all took some time. And rather than God doing everything, God shared the work with creation, calling earth to bring forth vegetation and the seas to bring forth sea monsters, and God saw that it was good. Then God had an explosion of creativity and made animals. And God blessed them by saying, be fruitful and multiply. The very first blessing was sex. Then God said, let us create humans in our own image and likeness. God, the community, God, the family, God, the friend group, God, the opposite of isolation, said, let's do this together. Let's create humanity in our image and likeness. And God saw that this was good. Genesis 2. On the day God created the heavens and the earth, there weren't any plants yet because there wasn't any water yet, because there wasn't anyone to do the gardening yet. God didn't rush. This has to happen in a certain order to work. 
Then God formed an earthling. Adam is a genderless word for from the earth. God formed an earthling out of dirt and breathed into the earthling's nose to animate them. And this is how we received a soul and the gift of life. We are dirt and the breath of God, body and soul entwined. And then God said, it is not good for the earthling to be alone And so God took a rib from the first earthling and created a second one. And God gave the two to each other because they belonged that way. They were made for and from each other, and they fit. And this is why still to this day, many of us need to fit with someone else, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. To be alive is to be embodied, to feel the breath in our chest. We are made of dirt, of matter, filled with the breath of the heavens. Rabbis have long taught that life begins at birth, that the soul enters the body when we take our first breath. We are not minds floating untethered from the tactile bodily reality of living. We have hearts of flesh. We can touch and feel and love because we were born into bodies. And Genesis teaches that everyone is created in the image of the sacred, that the image of God is a unified plurality, and it is good, and we're made of each other. There is no single embodiment of the sacred. Whoever you are, however you were formed, whatever the shape and size and color and ability and gender and desire of your body, it's sacred and necessary and good as it is. Because to be alive is to be embodied. And in Genesis, the first blessing that God gives creation is sex. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the ability to create life and love and tenderness. To be more together than we are on our own. To know the transcendence of loving another and being loved in return. To express care and respect through touch, this too is sacred. So to be queer or gay or trans or bisexual or asexual, to love who you love, to be yourself in a society that says that is somehow wrong, is an act of fidelity to all that is holy inside you. Your flesh is a testimony to the power and beauty of wearing your own truth. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves.